want to encourage you to turn your Bibles again this morning to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 3. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. I'm just going to read one verse uh, in your hearing. Hebrews chapter 3, then verse 12. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the, the time we've enjoyed this morning and just singing to thee and considering the cross and the glory of the cross and what you have done for us through your precious son. And uh, the, these moments as we uh, continue our, our trek through your holy word and through this particular book, I, I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to convey your word, your holy word, in a way that is honoring to thee, and therefore in a way that would be good to the souls of each one that is here. I I thank you that uh, you know the hearts of all men and women, and I pray that you would help each one of us and give us understanding, give us insight into uh, the character of your word, um, help us to apply it in a way that would be most honoring to thee and, and truly for the good of our souls and our own conformity increasingly to the person of your Holy Son. So we commit this time to thee and pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have noted um, chapter 3 and verses uh, 1 through 6. There's a positive example of faithfulness uh, on the part of Moses and the part of our Lord, on the part of no- Moses as a, a servant in God's house, and then on the part of our Lord as a, uh, a son over God's house. Then uh, verses 7 through 11, there's a quote from Psalm 95. And this really brings to the forefront of our minds the unfaithfulness of the wilderness generation, uh, the rebellion against God, their hardened heart against God. They continually put him to the test. And as such, those that that spurned him did not enter enter God's rest. They didn't enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. And we see that the author of Hebrews, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not just relegate this to ancient history that has no bearing on the present, but rather he makes immediate application to his readers and therefore to all Christians that in in, in light of that, in, in light of their failure, in light of their rebellion, then the the effect on that, the consequence for you and I is take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's the right response to the failure of the wilderness generation. Uh, Simon Kistemaker, in his work on Hebrews, <coughs> excuse me, wrote the quotation from the psalm is now applied to the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews. Its meaning is especially significant for the people who are in danger of turning away from God The psalm citation serves as an introduction to a stirring appeal not to fall away from the living God. In a sense, Hebrews 3.12 may be called the the summary of the pastoral exhortations in the epistle. So you you can think of verse 12 as kind of a distilled essence of much of the thrust or the focus of uh, the book of Hebrews. It especially consists in a warning, as you can see, against the sin of apostasy, of falling away from God, which is the idea of an abandonment of what one has professed, or a desertion, or a departure from one's faith, principles, or party. Uh, our Lord himself, in, in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, this is when he's explaining the significance of the seed that fell in the rocky places, and 
It says, the one in whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word, immediately he receives it with joy, yet has no firm root in himself, but he's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So he receives the word with joy, and presumably there's some encouragement among other believers for a period of time. And then when difficulty arises because of the word, then he or she leaves their faith behind. So we don't want to uh, dilute the force of this text, but rather in hopes that it would truly be for the eternal good of our own souls. This morning, I, wanna, I want you to think with me about five features of this warning. Uh, the first three are a bit briefer and more introductory than the next two are delve a bit more into the content of the warning itself. So five features of the warning that we have here in verse 12. And and the first point I would make, it's a serious warning. It's a serious warning. Of course, all you have to do is read the verse to come up with that conclusion. When you read words like, take care, brethren, that there not be an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, those phrases immediately remind us this is a very serious kind of warning. The term beware is, um, or take care, or take heed. It it immediately reinforces... um, The quote from Psalm 95 is having application to the readers of Hebrews and to all Christians. Uh, Application from the wilderness generation who was not faithful. So the idea, as as we've noted, in in light of their failure, um, then we are to understand our own vulnerability uh, and, and, and don't follow their path of obstinance and unbelief. It's like the force of the words that we read recently in in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11. It's not just a history lesson, but it's an example for us um, not to be like these people. 1 Corinthians, just to remind you, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the thought is, uh, consider what they did and consider what happened to them and don't repeat that pattern. The term beware, it's to take care, to be careful, prudent, or watchful to do something. It's conceived of as watching carefully. Uh, William Lane comments on the significance of the grammar here. He says the imperative, be careful, followed by the negative particle and the verb in the indicative mood introduces a sharp warning. Uh, The writer is apprehensive that the community may falter in its response to the promise of God. Just a couple of cross-references that might be uh, helpful. 2 John 1.8, watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished. Mark 13.5, Jesus answering them, begin to say, take heed that no one deceives you, or beware that no one deceives you. Um, deceives you, I should say. So the seriousness of this warning is understood uh, by the verdict that God rendered uh, to those who tested him and hardened their heart. Um, It says he swore in his wrath they would not enter their rest. And in, in light of that, of those words ringing in our ears, want us to beware of an evil, unbelieving heart and departing from the living God. That especially brings out the seriousness of the warning. <clears throat> One author um, wrote that there are actually three rests that are spoken of in this section of our epistle. Uh, the first is the rest of the Sabbath on which the Lord rested from his works. And the second is in Palestine. 
on entering which the Israelites were to rest from toil and misery. And the third, which is the true rest, is the kingdom of heaven and those who come to this truly rest from their labors and hardships. The emphasis here is on the second of those. It's entering which the Israelites were to rest from much toil and misery. I think John Owen captures the seriousness of this. He writes, God gives the same firmitude and stability under under his threatenings that he does unto his promises. Uh, That is to say, they they can both be counted on as coming to pass, his promises as well as his threatenings. There's no such thing as an idle threat with the being of God. Sometimes we use that phraseology with one another, but when it comes to God, there's no such thing as an idle threat. He writes, when men have provoked God by their impenitency to decree their punishment irrevocably, they will find severity in execution. And you might recall these words from Excuse me, Romans chapter 11, where Paul writes, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fail severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. So the, the seriousness of the warning is seen in the fact that they, are, that they did not enter the promised rest, and the fact also that this verb to take care or beware, um, it's in the imperative, which means it has the force of a command. So it's not a recommendation for the, the committee to discuss, but rather it's something to be obeyed. And then it's in the present tense, which indicates there's ongoing application. So we see in the first place, it's a, it's a serious warning, just the content of the, of the verse brings that out. But secondly, it's a compassionate warning, a compassionate warning which I think is very important. Um, the author addresses them as brethren. That immediately identifies the writer as one who cares about them, uh, what is best for their souls. It's not dispassionate and clinical, but he's very much concerned about them. It's addressed from a brother in Christ. So it goes out to those who are, are members of the body of Christ by means of adoption. A brethren is the idea of believers uh, as one's own sibling in God's family. Philip Hughes wrote, It's noticeable that our author addresses the readers tenderly as brethren, that is, fellow Christians, thus indicating that while he finds it necessary to rebuke them sternly, he does not despair of there being true faith and faithfulness among them. And we note back in chapter 3, verse 1, he regards his readers as brethren. In chapter 2 and verse 11, those who our Lord has sanctified, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So, And Jesus regards um, all those who are devoted to him as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Matthew twelve fifty, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And, and those who are in communion with him, he regards as brethren. In Matthew twenty five forty, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it unto the one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So it's a serious warning in the first place. It's a compassionate warning. It comes from a brother to brothers and sisters in Christ. Then thirdly, it's a personal warning. And I'm thinking of the words, lest there should be in any one of you. His words, they're addressed to all of the, of the congregation, but they need to be personally applied. As one author put it, the admonition is addressed to the whole community, but because it is recognized that individuals are exposed to the danger of apostasy, uh, the author's pastoral concern extends to every member of the congregation so that he urges each one to be watchful. So it's addressed to all, but it personally has to be applied. It's, it's the same disposition as Psalm 139, 23 Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. Or Psalm 26, 2. Examine me, O Lord. Try me. Test my mind and my heart. Owen puts it well. There is need of great care, heedfulness, watchfulness, and circumspection for a due continuance in our profession to the glory of God and advantage of our own souls. Now, in the fourth place, I would have you notice that it's a moral warning, a moral warning. Now we're getting a little bit more into the, excuse me, into the substance of the warning. The readers and all believers are warned against having an evil, unbelieving heart. That's the danger that is warned against. This is the great concern. This is a spiritual condition that is to be avoided, to have an evil, unbelieving heart. It describes the kind of heart that is actually needed if, if apostasy is the goal, the necessary prerequisite to falling away from the living God is an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, I, I call this a moral warning because the term evil um, resides in that category of thought. In the ethical sense, it's wicked, degenerate is the idea, morally bad or wrong. And just to kind of develop this uh, a little bit, this term is used to describe a uh, predominant moral quality of the great enemy of our souls, in Matthew thirteen nineteen, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is the one in whom seed was sown beside the road. His, his evil is seen in thwarting the advancing of the gospel. In John seventeen fifteen, in the context of our Lord's high priestly prayer, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. That's his concern in prayer. And it's also the reason we have spiritual warfare. Ephesians six sixteen. in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Also, his emissaries are referred to as evil. Acts 19.15, an evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? It's used of unsaved people who don't have faith. In 2 Thessalonians 3.2, that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. And also of unsaved people who are deceivers and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's used of the deeds of unsaved people. In 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. In Matthew 15.19, it's used of the thoughts of the unsaved. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Here it refers to an unbelieving heart. The unbelieving heart is referred to as evil. And the sense of unbelief, which you already have this in your mind, it's the trait of not trusting or relying on someone or something, especially used of not trusting in or relying on the God of Israel and Jesus, his Messiah. And the importance of avoiding this spiritual condition of unbelief is seen, at least in part, that we find it in our text, verse 12, and then at the end of the section, it occurs again in verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. Now, just keep in mind, um, 
how, how important faith is. I mean, this is the indispensable quality of eternal life and becoming a Christian. In John 3, 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. John three thirty six, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John six forty, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And, and faith really is defines what and who we are as Christian believers. He that comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those that, that seek him. Um, Abraham is commended to us as a, as a model in Romans 4.20. <clears throat> Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, the description here of a heart of as evil reflects the influence of Numbers chapter 14 that we touched on on last week. And you might recall um, in chapter 13, the spies are sent out into the land of promise. They came back with a good report of a land flowing with milk and honey. But some pointed out the people are large and uh, they're strong and will be like grasshoppers in comparison to them. Just to reread the the rebellion of the people, this is from Numbers chapter 14 and verse 1. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader to return to Egypt. Now there's two texts of scripture. And again, this is the, this is the background to the section, the section in Hebrews. There's two texts of scripture that clearly describe them as evil. Numbers 14, 27, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? So that their evil is because they are grumbling. And then also verse 35 of Numbers 14, I, the Lord, have spoken surely this I will do to all this evil congregation congregation who are gathered together against me. So the evil there is reflected in their rebellion against God and also then their their grumbling against God. Now the background of Numbers 14 I, I think is helpful in a couple of ways. Number one, it shows that unbelief is more than a lack of faith or lack of trust in God. It is that. So that's probably what we first think when I say unbelief, well, it's not trusting, it's not relying on God. That is true. But it involves more than that, and this helps us to understand the evil. It is a refusal to believe in God. Inherent in the idea of unbelief, there's stubbornness and rebellion against God. Um, it's not just, I cannot believe, but I will not believe. Numbers 14.9, with some other text I think is helpful. If you'd like, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, and I'm going to quote a little bit from Deuteronomy 1.26 in a, in a couple of moments. But in Numbers 14.9, it says, Only do not rebel against the Lord, do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So they're told not to rebel against the command to take the land, and they're given a reason for it. It's not groundless faith. God will act in their behalf. The protection has been removed. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, in verse 26, um, verse 26 repeats the thought of this idea of not rebelling, that is, don't disobey the command of God. Verse 26 of Deuteronomy chapter 1 Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. 
And you grumbled in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified in heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be shocked nor fear them. And and notice... um, more, more reason is given as why they should have obeyed God. Verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked <clears throat> until you came to this place. Then verse 32 says, but for all this you did not Trust the Lord your God. In verse 26, their disobedience is presented as rebellion. In verse 32, it's seen as not trusting in the Lord. A lack of belief includes repulsing God and rejecting God and and responding negatively against him. So the evil is seen in that it it does not trust God, does not rely on his clear promise to fight on their behalf, but it rebels against him. It's obstinate and hard-hearted. And it misrepresents his motives. So the heart of of unbelief, it's evil because it does more than not trust or rely. It rebels against God. It rejects the being of God. This helps us to understand why it is, I don't know if you've ever struggled or not, unsaved people are presented as enemies. They don't really seem that way, do they? I mean, you can talk to an unsaved person, and they might seem pretty nice, and you have a good conversation with them. But the Bible says that they are enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's because inherent in their unbelief, whether it's stated or not, there is a resistance against God. There's a rejection of the being of God. That is the evil, brings out the evil of unbelief. So there's a moral warning here. It cautions against an evil heart of unbelief. Well, then in the fifth place, I'm calling it a consequential warning a consequential warning. By consequence, I mean an evil heart of unbelief leads to a falling away from the living God. The sense of the term, <clears throat> excuse me, to fall away here is to cause to abandon, uh, to cause someone to abandon a cognitive position, that's how they think, conceived of as physically distancing oneself uh, from, from it. There's a different term that's found in, in 2 Timothy 2.18, but I think it makes the point says, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, they've abandoned the truth. They've left something, and what they have left is the truth. So it makes sense, I believe, to see an unbelieving heart as a preparation for falling away from the living God. They both involve the same disposition. You have to have the same mindset in order to fall away from the living God, but one leads to the other. What is needed to fall away from the living God is an evil heart of unbelief. That's the first thing, but the disposition is the same. I would add into this heading of falling away from the living God just a couple of uh, further points. Uh, Number one, this is a tragic eventuality or with a disastrous result. That is, abandonment uh, involves a turning away from something here. It's a turning away from the living God. It's a turning away from a gracious, enriching relationship with God to a judicial, adversarial relationship with the same being. It's, it's leaving the living God. It, that, that requires 
that you arrive at some destination. And to me, at least in the book of Hebrews, the most logical destination to, to leave the living God in this gracious sense. <clears throat> I landed at, he, at Hebrews 10.30, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, in both cases, there's association with the living God, but the first one is gracious and glorious, where people worship him and praise him and trust him. The second one, it's adversarial. It's a judicial relationship with the being of God. I'm using the word tragic here because and I think it's better to say incomparably tragic to reflect the import of the words um, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm saying that's tragic. I'm saying that's a terrible, terrible disaster. I would argue that there's nothing worse than that. Um, we use the word tragedy or tragic from time to time. I think for me, if, I'm, if a young person dies, they go on a hike and some unfortunate accident happens, that's tragic and, and it's heart-wrenching. A few weeks ago, some of you saw maybe the, the footage from Lahaina, the fires that were going on there. We were there several years ago. It was a nice, quaint town. And just looking at that, the loss of life there and the people being displaced, that's tragic. Save people, unsaved people, we all look at that and say, that's a tragedy. But, but I'm arguing this is an infinitely greater calamity and tragedy because it involves bearing the wrath of God forever because of one's own sin. So this is a great tragedy to turn away from the living God. It's a tragic reality. It's a tragic eventuality. Secondly, it's an irrational course of action. And I want to suggest to you it's irrational for two different reasons. Number one, and you might turn here to Jeremiah chapter 10. Just have it ready, Jeremiah chapter 10. But it's an irrational course of action because the option... um, the option, if you have the living God as your object to trust and worship, the only object is idols. If you turn away from the living God, you have to worship something. You have to trust something. And the option to that is idols. And here I thought Jeremiah chapter 10 is helpful. Verses 1 through 10, this is under a, a satire on idolatry. and helps us to see, I think, the irrationality of this kind of action. Jeremiah 1 Chapter 10, verse 1, hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens. Although the nations are terrified by them, the customs of the peoples are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. They can't do anything because they're inanimate objects. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like thee. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphaz, the work of a craftsman, and of the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. Then verse 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. In contrast to that, he is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So what I'm suggesting here, I'm affirming here, 
This is an abs- there's an absurdity to idolatry here. Um, and, and I don't really look down my nose. I read this, I don't look down my nose at these people because this is the inclination of the human heart. This is the direction of the human heart. It's an exercise in delusion. This is grown-up people created in the image of God. And, and, and what do they do? They, they, they cut a piece of wood from the forest. They decorate it with silver and gold. Then, then they have to nail it to something to, to, so that is substantial so it doesn't tip over. And it's like a scarecrow in a field that cannot speak. It's sort of like Psalm 115. You know, they have ears, but they cannot hear, eyes that they cannot see, nose that they can't smell, a mouth but they can't speak. It's an inanimate object. It cannot walk. It has to be carried about. It would be like in our day, if you're going on vacation and you're getting ready to leave and you say, okay, don't forget the chips, don't forget the binoculars, and don't forget the gods. We have to take them. We might need them somewhere along the line. In contrast to that, the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes. The nations cannot endure his indignation. Turning away from the living God is irrational because the option is some form of idolatry which can do nothing for the soul. And there's 101 things that constitute idolatry. There's all kinds of things that our hearts can go after that can become an object of our affection that displaces the affection that we should have for the being of God. It's irrational, secondly, because of whom it is turning from. It is turning from the living God. I just have you consider in this respect um, that the glory of conversion is, um, is somebody who's turning from idols to the living God. They're going the opposite direction of what we've just talked about. The Apostle Paul was thankful for the Thessalonians. He said, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They are turning from that which has no life to that which is the source of spiritual life and that which is the source of, of physical life. It's on this basis that the Apostle Paul, he urges people to be converted in Lystra, Acts chapter 14. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Remember when the apostle Peter was converted, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Messiah, the son of the living God. That was part of his conversion experience. We had a, a prayer meeting this morning. If it wasn't for the living God, that would be an exercise in futility <laughs> to pray. And if God is not the living God, that, that would be absolute foolishness. But we pray to him and we glory in that because we know he is the living God. He is the present God. He is the caring God. He's the hearing God. Our, our assurance that he is a present help in time of trouble is rooted in the fact that he is the living God. You might remember the king had Daniel cast into the lion's den. And uh, he actually thought that Daniel would be delivered, but uh, he lost sleep that night. And in the morning, it's interesting to see what he said to Daniel. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. That's how he approached him. Servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Well, there's no way that God could shut the lion's mouth if he wasn't the living God and the present God and the powerful God. Psalm 95.6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our maker. You, you cannot, we cannot enthusiastically embrace the concept of worshiping God and praising God if he's not the living God. 
If we're not persuaded that he's here and he's present and he's interacting with us, then, then worship becomes also an exercise in futility. Psalm 84.1 says, How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul long even yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. There's an immediacy about worship that requires we worship the present God, the living God. So Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. That is a real warning, and it should be heeded. You should, you should think of it maybe as an, an injection of sobriety into your soul to keep you on the narrow path that leads to life. And so we need to always avoid um, any kind of uh, intrusion of unbelief, not trusting in God, resisting the being of God. Owen put it well. He said, the root of all backsliding, of all apostasy, whether it be notional in the mind or practical, gradual, or total, lies in unbelief. Well, shall we pray? Father, you are a gracious God. You are a kind God that are concerned for our well-being. And we thank you for that. We thank you for all of Holy Scripture. We are persuaded we need it all in our own understanding, our own growth and grace. I pray you would take what we have considered this morning and and make application to our souls um, for your glory and for our own good, for our own true, real progress and grace. I, I pray that you would give each one of us ears to hear what you would have for us and that you would make true application to our own hearts. And that would not only redound to thy glory, but it would be for the good of our own souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.